Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator this evening from Empire Magazine, Chris Hewitt. Hello all. Thank you for coming out. Uh, Terry Gilliam is many things. He's a Python, he's an animator, he's a film director, he's a visionary genius of The Whisperer, because I think he's watching from the sides. Uh, and he has given us some of the greatest films of the last 30 years, from Brazil to 12 Monkeys, from Time Bandits to Jabberwocky, Monty Python, The Holy Grail, to name but five. His new film, The Zero Theorem, opens today. Before we meet the great man, let's take a look at the trailer. We always wanted to feel different, unique. Objective analysis, however, concluded that we are but one in many single worker bees. Everyone's getting rich, except you. What seems to be the problem? We are dying. Who's we? Us. Ourselves. But there's only one of you. So it would appear. Right, Quinn, how's it hanging? Is it hanging at all well? Aye. Sorry. Fear of death, fear of life, fear of open spaces, fear of people. We fear nothing most of all. Are you trying to be difficult? Been handpicking talent to crunch it since before I was hired. Nobody laughs. It's a guaranteed burnout project. Zero theorem. All very hush hush. Zero musty. 100%. Good luck. I give him two weeks. Are you here alone? We are generally everywhere alone. You think my address is incredibly ugly? My dad used to buy me these incredibly ugly clothes to keep the boys away. Only made me want to get naked. Excuse us. Zero musty for 100%. Where is this place? All in your mind. We're safe here. Zero musty for 100%. What happened to you, man? Life, life happens to everybody, all right? The only reason you're not laughing is because you're the punchline. You have made a very big mistake. We don't believe you. Why would you want to prove that all is for nothing? Close your eyes. Now, make sure it in your mind. I know we're connected somehow. Just come with me. We always wanted to feel a reason for being, the meaning of our life. We can be together for real. Please welcome the great Terry Gilliam. Terry, welcome. Uh, so, Terry, I believe, if I recall correctly, the Pythons tackled the meaning of life uh, almost 30 years ago. And now yes. here you are again. Yes. What is it about you and the meaning of life? Uh, my inability to know what it is. <laughs> the eternal search. Yeah. Uh, that's it. And uh, no, I thought I thought our summation, or Mike Palin's summation on the inner meaning, meaning of life, was quite useful. Just be nice to your friends. You know, tidy up after yourself and get on with it. Uh, <laughs> some people want more than that. Yeah. Uh, do you want more than that? Um, it, yeah, I actually do. I think it's nice to be able to make things that make a difference mm -hmm. in that sense. And so I think a lot of people would be, would like to be able to 
influence the world more than they're likely to do. Uh, my whole life has been learning how little influence one actually does have, despite one's best efforts. So um, this is a script that came to you. Mm. Uh, when did it come to you? A few years ago? It came to me in a dream. I believe God <laughs> sent it, actually. <laughs> um, First class or second class? <laughs> With me, it's third. It's, uh, uh, it's steerage, but it comes to me. Uh, uh, no, Dick Zanuck, the famous Dick Zanuck, who you know, produced a lot of Tim Burton's films, um, he came to me with it, um, and it was interesting because it wasn't a very good film script. It was written by Pat uh, Russian, who is a creative, um, a, a professor of creative writing in Florida, and but it was full of interesting things, interesting characters, different ways of going about it, and uh, it intrigued me, but. Despite the number of free lunches I got from Dick, I decided I'd rather go off and do um, um, Dr. Parnassus. Yeah. And I did. And then after that, uh, I tried to do, as I always do, as I'm doing now, uh, restart Don Quixote. Yeah. And having failed once again on that one, I found, it, oh, it's going to be a couple more years before I get a job. And I thought I better do something. And my agent said, well, what about Zero Theorem? And, and uh, Voltage Pictures, who were putting money into it, said yes, and off we went. So I'm intrigued by the, the, the script. When it arrived, was it uh, formatted in the usual way the script is, or was it slightly different, slightly more out there? It was a little bit more like a story, uh -huh. in that sense, yeah. Um, I mean, it's a it was a script, but it's the kind of thing when you get a script, there's, uh, there's more structure in a script, rather than just lots of wonderful dialogue and character. Um, and on one hand, that intrigued me. On the other hand, I knew it wasn't really a film script. Mm. But uh, I thought, let's go for it. And in a sense, I, we didn't really spend the time one normally does to, um, quote, um, improve a uh, script before we started shooting. Because there was only two months between uh, Christoph Waltz saying yes and, and them agreeing to pay for it. And me starting shooting okay and so there wasn't time to do anything other than go it, what's on the page we will do and we altered as we went along because you know we had to and in fact i spent longer in post-production on this one than anything i've done before because <laughs> in many ways we rewrote it oh really yeah i mean with the material we had, it was like a jigsaw puzzle. It always is like that with my films. Uh, scenes that should go there end up there. This one was more so. And uh, I, I, I mean, I, the first thing I did was to chop off the last three scenes and the uh, unbelievable Hollywood ending. <laughs> I have to ask, was there an unbelievable Hollywood ending? There was an unbelievable Hollywood <laughs> ending. But it was probably one reason the film got made. And then I betrayed them all. <laughs> Do they know? Have they seen it? Le you know, the money guys, have they seen the, uh, the yes, ending? Yes, they're delighted they with it. it. They realize I made the right choice. <laughs> and, and most ha happily, Pat Russian, who wrote it, was so relieved that I cut it off because he was actually sticking that ending on to try to get somebody interested in giving him the money to make it. <laughs> so um, Pat sent the script to you, and I believe um, I, I saw another uh, interview with you where you said that he basically tailored it for you. He wrote it for Terry Gilliam by putting in lots of Terry Gilliam references. It was uh, I don't know if he did that. I, all I know is that when I read it, I knew here was a man who had seen every film I had made, made and, and memorized most of them. Uh, and I thought this would be an interesting way to do 
uh, my compendium, my autumn year compendium, like uh, Felitti <laughs> did with uh, Amarcord or Bergman with Fanny and Alexander, yeah. where they kind of just relaxed and did the things they were really good with, all the things they'd done before in a nice new package. That was my plan. But how much of you, um, if you have two months in from the moment the, the money guys go, yes, we're going to do this, Christoph Waltz signs on, how much of you can you put into this? Because it, it's obviously about a man searching for the meaning of life. And I wonder how much of your particular search and your particular interest in that subject filtered into Christoph Waltz's character. I think it always does. I mean, I always end up making autobiographical films in one form or another. I mean, I usually am one or more of the characters in it. So... If I can't identify with them, I don't know how to make the film. So there, there's all of that. I mean, uh, I think what intrigued me more on this one was that when I fir first met Christoph, and, and I said, you know, you're never off screen. This is your film, this Cohen Leth's film. Mm. And I said, I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You uh, are the film. And, and the thing with Christoph, here's a man who spent his whole life as a jobbing actor. He, he lived in Tufnell Park for eight years. He worked in England. None of us ever realized he was in, on the same planet, existing at all. And at, at 52 years of age, he suddenly becomes an international uh, motion picture star. Now that, there's a lot of stuff there to play with, a lot of frustration for all those years of um, non being a non-entity, uh, anger, uh, all these things. And I thought, this is going to be very good for the character. And indeed, it is. Um, let's take a look now. We actually have uh, some clips from the film. This one has uh, Christoph Waltz in action. Um, and this is, um, this is the scene where um, Bob talks to uh, Corin in, in, his, in his house. So we'll, we'll play the clip and we'll talk about it afterwards. You have any idea what the Zero Theorem is all about? Never seemed important. Okay. Here's the poop, the whole poop, and nothing but the poop. You're trying to prove that the universe is all for nothing. All matter, all energy, all life is just this one-time-only Big Bang glitch. Expanding universe will eventually contract into a super-dense black hole. Gravitational forces will be so strong that everything that's something will get squeezed into a single point of zero dimension and poof, the center disappears. No space, no time, no life, no afterlife, nothing. Nada. Zilch. Zip. Stop! Zero. How would anyone believe such a horrible thing? What's so horrible? I believe it. Nothing's perfect. Nothing lasts forever. It's nothing to worry about. If you really think about it. Yeah, your father should have assigned the Zero Theorem project to you. Well, he's been trying to for as long as I can remember. But I refuse to work on Zip T. Why? Well, because I'm nobody's tool. All right, that's your job. Nothing's perfect. Nothing lasts forever. Uh, I, I love that. I love that attitude. I love the fact that the, uh, it's almost like uh, the Emperor's New Clothes where the, the kid is the one that can see the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is that something he says that this is what he believes in? Bob, the kid says, I believe in this, that the universe is going to yeah. contract eventually. Is that what you believe? Yeah. Could, yeah. Why not? Oh, it might as well. Yeah. It's got to end somewhere. I know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what, in a sense, what the film is saying. This is it. This is what we got. Yeah. Find the meaning in it here, now. Live your life. Don't wait for somebody to tell you what it should be. Live it now. Find the meaning. And, and that's 
a very important thing for me in this film because I find now that we're living in the, the world of 100% tweeting and nonstop <laughs> uh, communication 24 hours a day, it's like nobody has time to just be alone. Who are you? Be alone. Find out. Don't keep twitting to some friend of yours to tell you who you are or what you're doing or what you should be doing. And that, that, that's very important to me because there's actually a line in there where he's in the film where he says, I was alone but never lonely because I've been for several years trying to um, promote aloneness to try to disconnect because I think so many of us are becoming neurons. Maybe we're just the axion or the dendrite. I'm not sure which one. <laughs> but without some other bit of information coming in, we don't exist. So as soon as we get a bit of information, <laughs> We gotta pass it on to somebody else. Oh, that's what you're eating. Oh, that looks great. Get over there. This is what Hollywood executives have become. They only exist because they get a little bit of information and they pass it on to the next people. And it's it's great if you're just a, a neuron. But I'm hoping we're just a little bit more interesting than your standard <laughs> neuron. Uh, that's pretty. I'm going to tweet that actually, Terry. That's, uh, <laughs> that's pretty good. Well, maybe I'll save it for later on. Um, obviously, we saw Christoph Waltz there. I mean, uh, how did he become involved? He uh, had had he just won Oscar number two at this point, or was that? Uh, did he, no, he got the second one for Django, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. No, he had he had won for uh, Inglorious Bastards uh, a year or two earlier, and in fact, that's where I first met him at the BAFTA Awards backstage with all our glittering friends, you know. As we, and 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 there was Christoph over there, and we both went. Got to work with you, <laughs> and indeed that's what happened. And uh, now I love him. He's he's just so good, so skilled. When we were when we were editing it, uh, every shot, every moment of the shot, there's something to watch with him. It's uh, it's all there. I personally think, and luckily I'm not alone because others have said the same thing. That this is maybe the best performance he's ever done. It's so rich. Uh, it's not as jolly or as, as outrageous as uh, his Quentin characters, but it's so complex and so, mm. I think, moving, incredibly moving. Well, there's something very um, uh, in control about his uh, Quentin characters, yeah. uh, both King Schultz and Hans Lander. They're, you know, they, they, they have this, this charisma about them. This guy, Corin, is completely, sorry, Corin, is completely, completely uh, cut adrift. He's completely bereft. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, and that's why I needed something like that, because the character is not a sympathetic character. In, in many ways, I think he's a selfish bastard who's so desperate to get away from everybody else who seems to be having a good time to wait for this phone call that is going to tell him the meaning of his life. And in fact, he does isolate himself, and yet what the film does is not allow him to be alone ultimately, and he finds his humanity in the course of it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it'll be a happy Ending. <laughs> there was one once. <laughs> it got cut. Um, how did you persuade Christoph? You want uh, uh, to basically shave his head and shave the eyebrows and, and go the whole hog. Well, that's what the script said, that he was hairless. What do you do? <laughs> I, just do what I'm to I just do what I'm told. <laughs> I said, Christoph, off comes the hair. And then the great thing is all actors, their eyebrows are incredibly important tools in their, in, in their craft. Okay, you got nothing to work with, kid. Let's go to, let's go. <laughs> and it was great because what's so funny is when I saw him at the BAFTAs, uh, I hadn't seen him for uh, quite a while and his hair had grown back. I didn't recognize him. He doesn't <laughs> look like that man that's in, in yeah. Zero Theorem. Yeah. Now that's, and again, that's what's wonderful. He's, there's no vanity there. There's no, it's just what does the character demand? I will do it. 
Well, right from the beginning, I mean, you present us the first image of the movie is Christoph Waltz's uh, bald head and his bald but- ass. His, his buttocks, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no gloss over it. <laughs> it's yeah, it's there. Well, again, that was in the script, and I, I just, it, it basically states everything right in that first shot. Chaos in the universe, a man there floating in it, mm. completely naked, mm. kind of lost, Absolutely. waiting for something, yeah. which all of us really are, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> if it wasn't for tweeting, we would all feel like that man. <laughs> I'd be so lost, so, so lost. Um, you once, uh, you got Bruce Willis to shave his head for 12 Monkeys, and you once described his head as a monument to cranial architecture. I've never forgotten that quote. Where do you rank Christoph Waltz's bald skull on the Bruce Willis scale? Oh, God. Now, he doesn't have the, the angles that Bruce has built into his. Uh, I mean, Bruce has been working on baldness for a long time. <laughs> Christoph has still got a full head of hair. I mean, uh, and so he's not practiced the various angles that a head must have. Uh, now, I think, I think it's, very, it's a good head. Um, and I think that's why you'll see at the end of the film, he's very... Majestic. I would say he belongs on Mount Rushmore in, in, in the last shots of the film. You decide for yourself whether the angles are correct, but I think it's a, it's a majestic head. Absolutely. By the way, will we ever see the Hollywood ending on I, Blu-ray? Or? Of course. I'll, yeah. put, I'll put it on a Blu-ray or a DVD and allow other fil- let film students see if they can put the film back together and make a better film. <laughs> I really like that. No, I, I love showing all the bits and pieces of the, of the jigsaw puzzle. And I do encourage people to go and play with it. Maybe you can make a better film. There are many films to be made out of the material. Just give them all the uh, all yeah. materials out there. Yeah. Uh, that'd be fun. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Who's seen the film, by the way? Because it opened today. Okay, so you're intrigued by the idea of this Hollywood ending? Okay, well, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> and um, we've got another clip now from, from the movie, which is... Um, uh, this shows the, the outside life. This is, this is a future London. How far in the future is this film? I think it's yesterday already. <laughs> I mean, the future is roaring. I mean, literally, we shot it in Bucharest and tried to disguise the streets so they had some element of Londonness in them so I could get London or British taxpayers' money to help <laughs> finish the film. Uh, and, uh, and at the time when I was putting it all together, I kept inventing things that I thought would be. But literally by the time we were shooting the last couple scenes, it was in the past already. So it's, it's what you see. <laughs> let's, uh, let's take a look. It's funny, those, those little cars are called Twizzies. Uh-huh. Renault gave us 15 of them. Uh, that wasn't sufficient to fill the streets, so I, I stole the golf carts from the studio and we stuck uh, panels on the side and turned them into taxis. <laughs> but I'd never seen a Twizzy before in my life. The day I got back from shooting in Bucharest in London, there was one parked right by my house in London. <laughs> so Break in, take it. Yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by that scene. There's so much... There's so much uh, 
density of material, mm. on, uh, visual material for people to take in there. Uh, how much fun was that to to layer things? The 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 audiovisual displays on the walls as well, as Cohen walks past. It was great because I just wanted to overwhelm him. You know, I just information overload. Um, and those basically, I wrote most of those silly ads there. And uh, and we've got a really great cast doing that. We've got Gwendolyn Christie from uh, Game of Thrones. There's Lily Cole. There's Ray Cooper, the famous percussionist with Elton John and yeah. Eric Clapton. There's Rupert Friend. That was our cast of, of, of people to do all those ads. Okay. And I just wanted to get, you know, like Occupy Mall Street now. <laughs> you know, Shoppers of the World Unite. All of this stuff. How you take, where you take, you know, sort of heartfelt political slogans and things, you turn them into ways of selling shit. <laughs> and uh, there's also a cameo in there from our beloved mayor, Boris Johnson, at the very, very yes, end. Yes, yes. There's Boris, slightly aged. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, still blonde. The, the thing that was funny, Bucharest, of course, drives on the opposite side of the street, and I was having to pretend it was London. But when we got the Twizzies, they, the, 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 the steering wheel is in the center, so it didn't make any difference. Same with the golf carts. But we did have one London bus, so I stuck with it. And we had to <laughs> stick it in there, get Boris up there. And, and what we had had, uh, he's saying, drive on the right. It's your human right <laughs> to drive on the right. Remember that. Um, how difficult was it to make that that movie on that scale, that scene on that scale? Because I, I also saw an interview with you where you uh, you said you had less money to make this movie than you had to make Life of Brian, yeah, which is astonishing. I, I know. I think when when you see the whole movie, even those bits, I mean, it sound it looks like a proper Hollywood movie, yeah. but it was a budget of eight and a half million dollars. It's basically impossible, but. One reason we were in Bucharest, because it is the cheapest place in Europe where you can get a good crew and shoot. Um, and I brought basically five people um, to Bucharest. Everybody else is local. And the crews were great there. But we just worked so hard, killed ourselves. Everybody, for me, it was say, all right, you're really good. Now we're going to test how good you are. Here you've got no money and no time. Do it and see what happens. And so what does happen is that, I don't know if you notice those costumes, Carlo Pajoli, who did them, again, had no money. So he found a, uh, a market outside of Bucharest where it was all Chinese product, where you bought uh, material, cloth and all, not by the yard, but by the kilo, just sheer bulk weight. And it was horrible man-made stuff that was like, I don't know if you, any of you remember trim jeans in this country, <laughs> where it was sort of, you know, this plastic material, and you'd pump it up a bit, and then you'd sweat to death inside the thing and lose <laughs> tons and tons of, 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 of weight uh, in a very short while. The clothes were like that, so Matt Damon, I, I, he would, it, it, was, it was very difficult to keep the moisture pouring off him, from pouring off him. It was horrible. It, and, but even that material, cheap though it was, wasn't enough. So Carlo then got transparent uh, shower curtains and tablecloths and cut out to make clothes as well. So we ended up with, a, I think, an extraordinary fashion statement that wouldn't exist were it not for our uh, abject poverty. <laughs> and you shot it in how many days? I think it was just 35, was it? 34, 35. something like that. When was the last time you, you had a, a schedule that compressed? When I was young and healthy. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I mean, it was it, we, literally by, I, th I think the last week was eight days. I mean, it was seven, but there was eight because it was just working around the clock. People were falling asleep all over the place. And, uh, when, 
there's a lot there's a lot of complicated things that happen in there because we got a, a space sequence where um, Cohen is naked floating in space, and we then we've got this beach sequence with I think are we going to show that one or not? We're going to show Whatever. it. Yeah. yeah, and and this was all taking place at a tank uh, in in the studio, and they were supposed to have three days to revamp the the the, the tank and the, and the water for the beach. In fact, it had to be done overnight. So everything was like that. That that scene you saw on the street was shot um, before lunch, basically. We, <laughs> yeah, we had about uh, three or four hours to do the whole sequence. That's oh it. God. So there was no time to uh, do anything other than just work by instinct and and just do it. Now there was no going back. Do it, and we were very lucky. That's all I can say. Oh my God! Um, you mentioned the, uh, the the beach sequence. We'll we'll see that now. I don't know if you want to set it up. Who uh, we're seeing Cohen and um, basically Melanie Thierry's yeah, character. Melanie Thierry is playing the 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 female lead in it. Uh, she is basically a, a gal who works in the sex business, um, uh, and she um, actually she's given they're given these suits that they wear and they go into a virtual world and the virtual world uh is i guess what we're going to see in a moment absolutely roll a clip like it i made it just for you Something special for a special guy. <laughs> We're not at all sure it's quite us. Don't be silly. We no longer drink. But you can do anything you want here. You can drink and never get drunk. And you can eat and never get fat. Let's forget all about hammering out dents in sheet metal. From my mind. Mm. Do you feel this? But it's not real. It's better than real. <laughs> it's better than real. Um, that, that beach is about as wide as this room. Really? That's it, yeah. <laughs> not much room for frolicking then with a with a beach ball. <laughs> they really couldn't do that. Um, it's interesting. You say that the film takes place yesterday, effectively, but I'm pretty sure that technology isn't quite available just yet. Unfortunately, Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. <laughs> um, Melanie is really uh, interesting. She's uh, so effervescent in the film. Um, what did you find her? How did she come about for you? She's quite well known in, in France, uh, but she's tended to play these rather demure, serious characters. And, uh, and I told her, I thought, think of um, Marilyn Monroe and Judy Halliday. And that's what she does. She's just an extraordinary actor. She's never had a chance to play somebody, somebody as so, bu so bubbly and fun. And um, I loved her. There's a, scene, there's a very critical scene in the movie later on. Um, I, I won't tell you about it, but it's why I chose her for that scene, because I thought she would be able to pull that scene off brilliantly. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine actually 
was the one that uh, told me about her, Albert Dupontel. Mm -hmm. Does he mean anything? He's a brilliant French actor, director, writer, and I'm in his latest film. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and it's a, and uh, now he's, he's he's absolutely brilliant. And he said, uh, Melanie Thierry, and I didn't know who she was. And then she was in this film that Bertrand Tavernier had made, uh, The Princess of Montpazier, something like that. She's very elegant. And I called Bertrand up and asked him what he thought. And he, he says, she's like a Stradivarius. You can play her any way. She's just, she can go. She's fearless. And, well, when you see the whole film, every man, certainly every man I know is besotted with her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, speaking of uh, fearless performances, Matt Damon, we haven't seen him in the clips, but he's also in the film. He's brilliant. Matt Damon, as you've never seen him before, uh, I'm, I'm guessing. And uh, David Thewlis with quite the greatest hairpiece in cinema history, I I'm, <laughs> I'm saying. Well, this, this is what I love about filmmakers. You know, he's, he, uh, David came in, and we decided he was going to wear a toupee. Uh, okay, and the toupee was made and stuck on. And I, I went into the makeup room and said, have you ever thought of wearing it backwards? <laughs> <laughs> and and it, it ends up with kind of, it's like a futurist, Satan, like that, he's flying forth, but it's horrible. <laughs> I love it. It doesn't even begin to blend in. No, no, he that. just gave up on that. Just, and he doesn't know that because the guy looks in the mirror and it probably looks great, but all around the back, it just, it doesn't work. But he's, David, I've always wanted to work with David for a long time, and here was the chance, and he's, he, to me, it's just breathtaking. Every take is different. It's always within character, but each one he gives you a little something else to play with, and uh, his, his timing is exquisite. What I loved most, there's a, there's a scene which is in the film with him and um, Christoph, and I just kept the camera back. It's a two shot, mm. and just let the two of them play, and we could just sit back and watch two brilliant actors playing off each other just so subtly and beautifully. It's great. Uh, I've seen many reviews actually liken uh, David Hewlett's performance in this to Eric Idle. Is this I something think that's really a cruel, cruel criticism? <laughs> I mean, Eric couldn't even doesn't have a patch on David. What are you talking about? Wait till you see the Python show. You'll see what I mean. <laughs> Is this something that you, as a director, have to watch out for? Uh, actors in your films pythoning it up a way like people in Woody Allen movies usually play Woody yeah. Allen. I don't think they do, and I certainly don't encourage them. I think it's the critics who are trying to find some hook to, <laughs> to make it sound like they, they, they know what I've done in the past. Uh, uh, there's one, the Variety Review was the most horrible review. It's a woman whose name will not be spoken. Uh, and all she kept talking about was the Python jokes in it, and, and jokes, that's, there's nothing Python-esque in it. And I don't think David is, is Eric. I think he's, he's, he's quite... He's far subtler and far cle much cleverer and probably much funnier. <laughs> uh, okay, um, I imagine you all have questions for Terry, so let's put your hands up and we'll get some microphones around you. There's a gentleman here in the front row, another gentleman in the front row, gentleman in the front row, and then we'll move back. Hello, hello. Uh, do you think it's easier for Hollywood and uh, audiences to accept uh, an unhappy ending like in this film? Because you've managed to cut the Hollywood ending off and it was seemed to be accepted by the, the backers and stuff. Whereas when with Brazil, you went through hell and they cut it off, didn't they, in certain audiences? No, 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 that's not what happened, actually. With Brazil, they were trying to re-edit the whole movie and they didn't get to. I mean, that's a simple fact. I'd, we had this big battle, which is, you know, all in the Battle of Brazil book, which is amazing. Now, we won on that one. They didn't get their cut at all. It ended up what it is. This was easier because it's a lower budget and I do a final cut. It's as simple as that. So... There might have been a f few screams from certain departments, but uh, tough, tough. 
You sign the contract. <laughs> no, it's 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 it, it's I'm not being. I'm trying to make a, as good a film as you can, and and a film is about the world you create, the rules within that world, and I hate it when they're broken just because people feel there needs to be a happy ending. Uh, I, I also think it it demeans the audience that they think only audiences can. All they want to see is happy endings. Come on, audiences want to think. Audiences would like to see something different. I think last summer's tentpole movies failures prove the audiences maybe are getting ready to see something different than the last movie they've seen for the last 20 years. Different costumes, same explosions. <laughs> uh, this gentleman here, please, and then we'll go to you, sir. Hi. Um, I really enjoy your films for the philosophical uh, depths that they have. I wondered if there were any um, particular philosophers or concepts that you had in mind uh, when you were working on this one. Uh, other than, than trying to disconnect from the connectable, the connectable world or collectible world, world no, I don't know. That was a key thing. And I just, uh, no, I don't, I try to avoid them, strangely enough. I mean, I try to make intelligent films, and they are thought through on many levels, but I never um, intellectualize it. And I... I often don't know what I've done until I've done it. It's, um, but I, I kind of work from what seems to be honest or truthful, or at least entertaining, if they're not honest and truthful, something. Uh, and that, that's it. Uh, and I like, I suppose, going against the grain. If everybody's marching that way, I tend to go that way. So it seemed to me, uh, a few years ago, Tom Stoppard and I were talking about how could we make Brazil too? And neither of us knew how to deal with the world as it is, because it's becoming so, you know, amorphous. It, it, there's so many connections. Everything's going in all directions. And this, when it came as it did, the script, it did seem to deal with these ideas about somebody trying to disconnect. Okay, that's interesting. Let's play with that. So Brazil 2 never got farther than that conversation between yourself and Tom Stoppard? That's correct. Yeah. So every time I read about this being Brazil 2 <laughs> in the reviews, I say, well, maybe we, that's what one did. But at least there's an area that I thought I had a feeling about. It's so hard to understand the world we're living in now because it's changing so quickly. It's so broadly based. It's nice that information is flowing if you use it. But you know, the fact that, you know, what is it, 75% of the, the web is porn. There's nothing wrong with that, mind you. Uh, but, it's, uh, but it does seem to be you know, a little bit too much. Yeah, but these numbers are not That's a conservative inaccurate. estimate, is it? What? That's a conservative estimate, I'm guessing. <laughs> but, but that's why I wouldn't I, know, obviously. Yeah, but, um, what I think is very funny, because there have been a couple of reviews to uh, Melody being some sort of sex object. Yes, that's what she is. But she's much more complicated than that. But she's in the business that seems to be so popular. But I, I, and I do find the fact that we waste so much time taking pictures of the food we're eating to share with everybody else. <laughs> or we go to concerts and spend money for the, sh the show, and before the first song is finished, we've got a selfie with the show in the background and our, already our comments about the, f the, the, the song before it's even finished. These are the things that make me crazy, and I, keep, I suppose what I'm arguing for is live for the moment. Arcade Fire, who I did this uh, webcast a couple years ago with, uh, and their, their album, uh, The Suburbs, have a great song called We Used to Wait. And it's all about before you know, modern communication, where you'd write a letter, send it out, 
and it would take maybe a month before it came back. And the waiting was what made the whole thing so interesting, not just getting the thing back immediately. And we don't do that. We, we seem to be frightened of that. So that's the thing I'm bleating on about in this film, I suppose, in my very circuitous way. Now we have this strange phenomenon where people are so impatient. If a web page takes more than five seconds to load, you're, you're raging yeah. and screaming at yeah. the screen. Seems very strange, yeah. But are we, are we going to just sort of have sort of a mass? We're all becoming, I think, a gigantic brain is what we are on the world. We're all, this thing, we are like a, the world's brain. And are we going to have some sort of stroke, some embolism at one point where, bang, it goes like that. And then we're all walking around, ha, 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 on air. I don't know. I mean, we, we, I, I, wouldn't that be nice if all of us were, but it may happen, folks. Be careful. <laughs> Follow that, please, sir. Um, yeah. Um, Similar to sort of the last question, um, with sort of like the clip showed with the maths and the physics involved, did you work with sort of scientific correspondence and did you sort of adapt the script to sort of yeah. um, proper science and things like that? What was that like? No, no, I just, things happen. When you're making a film, my theory now, which I almost preferred to having complete control of it, things happen. And you just start working and then somebody comes up with a different idea and you move down that road or the actor goes this way and you, you go, it's... I actually, I think I'm, you know, it's kind of like riding a horse. You know, the horse knows where it wants to go half the time. You do a little nudge here, and I'm beginning to enjoy this kind of filmmaking, which are, has been forced on me by not having the money I dreamed of to do what I wanted. And, and so, all I know, the paths lead you in slightly different directions, and hopefully, the people that you surround yourself with, because I work with, I mean, I get the credit for it all. I also get the blame, but it's a team effort. And, and, and I'm always being argued with and I argue for different things in it because when I'm making a film, it's just trying to find my way through it. But I'm always just trying to be honest about things. And I, I find, interestingly enough, some people when they see my film, this one and others, because there's so much information in there, all the things I'm complaining about, information overload, but I put it in the film, they, and, and the visuals are very rich and they're telling stories in themselves, they kind of freak out and think it's much more intellectual than it really is. And, and that's why I find so often the best fans are the kids who come in with no preconceptions and are willing to trust me to take them through, it, to, uh, through, the, through the journey. Um, my wife, when she first saw the thing, and I was very worried, about I don't know if that works, she says, all you've got to do to this film is submit to it. Actually, that means Islam, doesn't it? Islam translate as submission. So I'm asking you all for a moment, join us in Islam and submit to Zero Theorem. It's a better film that way. Don't intellectualize it, feel it. And it's even better the second time. The third time is fantastic. The fourth is almost unwatchable, it's so extraordinary. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I guess in terms of your question was also about the, yeah, the, the, the veracity of the science in the movie and the, and the mathematics. Was that as it's actually true. There is, yeah. okay, there is stuff in there because one of the guys who was doing the, uh, on the effects, his father is a big physicist and he gave us a lot of equations which we just copied. I don't know <laughs> what they mean. I have not a clue what they mean. But there was something to do with black holes and things. So what you see on the wall there is... An actual equation. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, any more questions for Terry? Hi, Terry. Hi. Um, you always seem to... Hello. You always seem to get the weirdest performance out of your actors, like in 12 Monkeys. I don't know how you got Brad Pitt to Google his eyes so much, but how do you work with them to get 
those performances out of them? I, I, it's probably that I don't work with them. I play with them. <laughs> That's the key. <laughs> no, you hire people, number one, who you think are right for the part and also are going to be fun to work with. And then you create an, an atmosphere that they can feel safe in and they can take chances and go over the edge and hopefully I won't reveal those moments that don't work and we'll save them in the editing room. Someone like Brad, uh, when I met him, it was clear he, you know, he, he'd never been a motor mouth before the character demanded that. And he came to London and he was so keen to be in the film and I liked him just as a person. I thought, yeah, let's have a go. And it, it, I was actually terrified uh, up until the moment he actually turned up on the set. Because I thought, this, is, this could be a complete disaster. But what he did, two things. I put him together with a man named Stephen Bridgewater, who had worked with Jeff Bridges on Fisher King. And, and, and Stephen started working, doing exercises, you know, vocal exercises. He, um, Brad went to um, many mental hospitals, talked to a lot of doctors. He really did his research. And the, and the moment of relief, relief for me was the first day of shooting with him, which is exactly the opening scene with him in the film. And he just burst in there with all the tics and everything, all this. It was just extraordinary. But he, he worked at it. He did it. And I just encourage and, 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 yeah, and try to take a chance, play, be dangerous. Because that, to me, is the exciting part of filmmaking, is to you know, see how close to the edge you can get before you die. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. There's a lady beside you, yeah. Hello. Um, I'd like to ask, um, since you were tied on money with this film as well, did, uh, did you have someone make a documentary about it, like Lost in La Mancha? No, uh, this one, uh, there was no room for anybody to hang around the set. I just, there's no diary of this one. All I can say is that we did it because, you know, people like, like Tilda was there for one day. Um, the scene is a doctor scene with uh, Sanjeev, Bhaskar, um, Peter Stormar, and Ben Wishaw. One day. Uh, Brad, uh, Matt Damon, four days. Uh, David Thewlis, seven. I mean, People, we condensed everything, so what they had to do was in a very short period of time. Uh, it doesn't feel like that when you, you see the film. Tilda is so omnipresent in the film. Uh, but that was it, and they came down and they worked for scale, basically n next to nothing, uh, just to play. <laughs> uh, we've got time for a couple of last questions. Uh, is there anyone over on this side at all? If not, I'll go to this gentleman right here in the center. Um, I was wondering how long does it take to create the, the, the universe in which the characters evolve in the, in the movie, which is definitely has a Gildan touch, like in other films, and were you facing any issues uh, due to budget and things that you wanted to make and you weren't able to, to do in the end? Uh, what you see there was basically put together in, a, in two months from scratch. I mean, all the ideas come in, and I just start the ball rolling. I, in, in this particular instance, there was, there's a German painter called Neo Rauch, who I liked the way he collaged, worked together, different styles of painting, all in, within one, different colors. He said, let's start with that. And then we just start working, and, and we stay close together. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm involved in all, I'm running from all the departments. And, people just start coming up with wonderful ideas. I say, yeah, we'll go with that one. There was this, this Romanian guy who was doing all the packaging, you know, flakes of corn for breakfast. And 
his his English was just slightly askew, and it just made me laugh every day. So yeah, more of that stuff. <laughs> and it was really like that. There wasn't time to plan. Dave Warren designed it, and Dave is I've known him for years. He he was the real designer on on Parnassus. And, and he was just running like a madman trying to do this. We grab this. I see a building in, in Bucharest. I said, let's use that. And, and the, 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 the big mainframe of the computer was a, at a steel plant outside of Bucharest. And, and it was a great ruined building with this huge circular gigantic thing in it with a huge hole blown on the side of it. And I said, a computer it looks like to me. And, <laughs> and, and that's what we did. The church... Uh, we couldn't find a chapel that really looked burnt out enough and all that there, so we built it, and and we decided to incorporate uh, it's both Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox, all branches of Christianity in one church that's burnt with a headless Jesus leading, uh, and and so. That's how we do it. And if you've got good people, and on films, so often people are frightened, the, the different people in the different departments, because if the project is too big, uh, you know, the hierarchy up here and you know, the workers down there, I don't have any hierarchy. We can't afford the, to hire the hierarchy. So it's <laughs> me and them directly. Good idea. Great. Let's go. Uh, next. Yeah, good idea. And, and we play, and it's, and it's exhilarating when it's working. Uh, the hard work is then from having the ideas to then carrying them out. The one problem we had on this film was that we did some, a lot of the effects, the, the, the island in particular was done in Bucharest with a company there because I just wanted to use local talent. Um, and th it was a big problem there because they were understaffed under everything. And we ended up nine months in post. I've never been nine months in post. Normally it's six months. And uh, major problems. But we got there in the end. Uh, so it's it's it's... I don't know. I almost I find it more exhilarating working with less than with more, because you really just have to. You know, come on, we're gonna make a film. Let's go. We'll go out and do it. <laughs> <laughs> and before we take the last question from the audience, I just want to ask one last thing. As uh, as someone who has paid money for tickets, how's the Python show is coming along? Uh, are you in rehearsals yet, or are you have you seen a? No. Uh, was, at the beginning of the week, I was down looking at the set we've done. The set's going to be pretty spectacular. And it's got these rather boring old men standing in front of it. But uh, the set won't disappoint you. That's all I can say. Uh, they, uh, we won't really do anything until a week before the show is when we all gather to start rehearsing. So um, hopefully the costumes will be ready. The, <laughs> the wigs will be ready. The wheelchairs will be standing by. Uh, and then we'll get together. And I mean, we do have... The, the, the show planned out, the, the sketches and everything we're doing, but uh, it's, I know it'll change when we get together. Something will happen. The, the best played plans will go <laughs> awry. I'm hoping, because I just don't want it to be us you know, in our death throes out there. <laughs> uh, but uh, the point I keep saying is, we've got your money. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to even turn up, to be honest. <laughs> it's too late now. Uh, and the last question from over here. Yes, please. Hello, Terry. Very nice to see you. And um, a very complex film, invigorating, aliving, uh, uh, enriching, uh, uh, feeding the imagination, uh, sparking all over the place. Um, what did you enjoy most about the film, making the film? Ah, oh, probably very little. <laughs> Getting it finished was good. It was. It was really hard work. This is the, always the problem when you're making a film, is that. Once, you're, you, once you've leapt off the cliff, it's just a long, painful way down until you get out of it. And it was literally only at the end, after we'd finished it, it was dubbed, and I got to get away from it for uh, several weeks. I had to go back to look at 
regrading of uh, some prints. And it was the first time I was able to sit down and look at it and say, yeah, we made a good film here. This is a good film. Because up till then, I really didn't know. I think the thing that, if I'm going to have to pick up the things I enjoy, it's the actors. Because every day, they come in and surprise me. And that's the wonderful part. I think so many films now are so mechanical now because they're so complex as far as technical things and special effects. The actors just go in there, wear the costume, and say the line, and then look. Oh, God, it's coming. Oh, no, run. And, and I, I find that's boring. Uh, I just like the actors coming in. Even though we've discussed what we're doing in advance, you give them space, and they surprise you every time. It's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. That's all the time we have. Um, the Zero Theorem is out now. Uh, I think Terry would like you to go see it. How many times over the weekend? Yeah, well, it's closes tomorrow, so you've got, what, <laughs> uh, about, uh, I think it's an hour and a half. Let's go. An hour and a half. Yeah, <laughs> it's about six times before it closes tomorrow. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for your questions. Thank you, Terry Gilliam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.